Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute for uh, another in our continuing series of book forums. This particular one is, has been, I've been eager to look forward to it for uh, many months because I knew about this book for some time now. Uh, I knew about the podcast uh, that came first with it. This is Jacob Machangama's Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media, which is available now, been available for a couple of weeks, and is getting a very strong and uh, appreciative audience, I would say, in the United States, and will find, I think, its audience in Europe also with these issues. So we thought it was great. We've known Jacob for quite a while, and it would be great to have a book for him. And, uh, and uh, who better to have, to have just a conversation among uh, like-minded uh, people with some differences than John Rausch from Brookings? So let me give you what I'm going to do here is give a brief bio. You may know both of these people from their work of both of our, our uh, people. And by the way, I'm John Samples, the Vice President here at Cato, if you don't know me. Uh, and then I thought Jacob would tell us something about the book, and then we would talk about the issues, and then turn to Q&A uh, in a little while, okay? Uh, Jacob Machangama is the founder and executive director of the Danish think tank Justitia, and the host of the podcast, Clear and Present Danger, A History of Free Speech, not surprisingly, I highly recommend that to you. It's a very interesting podcast series and is available still. His writing on free speech has appeared in The Economist, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and many other outlets around the world. Uh, he lives in Copenhagen, Denmark. John Rausch is a senior fellow in, in the Governance Studies program and the author of eight books. Writing that really made me feel bad. I just, eight books, how do you do that? The, and many articles on public policy, culture, and government. His articles, too, have been highly influential, as you may know. Uh, his many Brookings publications include the 2021 book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, uh, as well as the 2015 e-book, which I think more and more is coming into its own, Political Realism, how hacks, machines, big money, and backroom deals can strengthen American democracy. He also writes often for The Atlantic and is a recipient of the 2005 National Magazine Award, the industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. So I'm eager to get started here. Jacob, could you tell us something about the book, about what led you to write it, the, also the podcast, and, and some of our, the themes that you found in what is really... I have to say, just in a striking uh, effort at, at research. I mean, you've really conquered a very demanding, very broad uh, set of issues, and uh, that's very hard just to work with, right? Because it's 2,000 years. Well, first of all, thank you, John. Thanks to, to Cato for, for hosting me. One of the few sort of live events I've been doing on, on, on this, too, so I really appreciate that uh, opportunity also because it's almost exactly two years since I was in Washington and that was also speaking at a Cato conference on I think the 9th or 10th March and John you were uh, I think we were having a dinner at a time where you know seen in hindsight might not have been uh, <laughs> the most response. It's a fool's paradise. Yeah, wasn't it, it? it could have been sort of a super spreader uh, uh, <laughs> event. Um, 
Yeah, so, so what led me to write this book, I, you know, I was born in, in, uh, in cozy, secular, liberal uh, Denmark, uh, um, and uh, in my youth, uh, free speech was sort of taken for granted. It was the air that we, we breathed, and, and um, sort of in the 90s and, and early 2000s, uh, so I didn't really think about it, uh, and I think most people didn't because it was not under threat. It was just part of daily life. And then Denmark became sort of the epicenter of a global battle of values over the relationship between free speech and religion when uh, someone who later became a good friend of mine, uh, Fleming Rose, the editor of a Danish newspaper, published a number of cartoons uh, depicting the, the prophet Muhammad, which, which led to a, a, a global crisis. And, and Fleming and many others still live with around-the-clock around security because of threats from, from, from extremists. But, but that forced many Danes, and, and I think many in Europe, uh, and maybe around the world, to sort of really think, what, what is this principle that we hail and that, you know, as a sort of an enlightenment value and, and the, the foundation of democracy, is it really that important? And a lot of people said, you know, maybe it's not so important. You know, these cartoons are punching down on a vulnerable minority, and this is not what free speech was supposed to, to, to be about. Um, uh, and that um, sort of surprised me, shocked me a little bit. And then uh, what I also saw was that generally people on the right <clears throat> was, were sort of free speech absolutists when it came to the cartoons. And then we had a number of governments who then adopted a number of restrictions on religious free speech, basically targeted, not, not, not formally, but everyone knew it was targeted at sort of extremist Muslims. Uh, and that limited free speech, and, and I was sort of saying this is, goes against the, the very principles that we held up during <laughs> the cartoon uh, affair. But a lot of people on the right said, yeah, well, free speech is important, but uh, in order to you know, safeguard our fundamental values, we have to limit the free speech of these particular uh, extremists. Uh, and that sort of led me to really try to investigate the whole history of free speech, what's at stake. Uh, what does it mean? What, what, what does it mean when a society is based on free speech? What does its absence uh, mean? Is this principle really so? Uh, you know, is it really worth uh, you know all the fuss? <laughs> and uh, and I found that it was. Uh, but but I think you know, looking at present debates about free speech, you can have a more detached attitude uh, rather than sort of the culture war tainting everything when you look at it through the prism of the past. And so the book really um, starts, I, I locate the origins of, of uh, free speech in the Athenian democracy some 2,500 years ago, where the uh, Athenians had two concepts of free speech, one of them being isogoria, so equality of speech, which was exercised in the assembly, where all uh, freeborn male citizens had a direct voice in uh, debating and passing laws. But perhaps even more um, of even more consequence was the second concept called parisia, which means something like uninhibited speech, which uh, uh, allowed a culture of tolerance and, and free speech, which so, you know, if you were a, a, a Plato, you could set up an academy and you could, uh, you could basically, um, you know, teach philosophy that, uh, that, that was not specific, particularly fond of, of the democracy that allowed you to, uh, to, to philosophize. Uh, you could have foreign life, foreigners like Aristotle set up shop. And uh, until uh, the tolerance wore a bit thin, Socrates could heckle people and roast them in the agora, the marketplace uh, um, uh, in, in, in Athens. And, and, and the Athenian... Statesman Demosthenes, uh, I think, came up with it. You know, he said, you know, in Athens, you're free 
to criticize the Athenian constitution uh, and praise the Spartan constitution, but in Sparta, sort of the bitter enemies of, of the Athenians, you can only praise the Spartan constitution. And I think that really is still is the litmus test of, of free speech. Are you able to criticize the, the, the political system under which you, you live? So, so uh, you know, the Athenian system, obviously by, by our standards, was not radically egalitarian, but by its time, it was uh, very much an egalitarian free speech uh, idea. And I, I, I sort of contrast that with the Roman Republic, where there was a much more elitist, top-down approach to free speech. So you would have uh, senators like Cato, <laughs> like Cicero, who believed in, in free speech, but mostly sort of for the senatorial elite, not the plebs uh, and, the, and the Roman uh, citizens did not have a right to address uh, assemblies the way that, that, that Athenian citizens did. And I think these two concepts, elitist and, and egalitarian free speech, have, have been in tension throughout uh, the, the, the history of free speech, uh, especially when, when the public sphere has been expanded, either through technology, be it the printing press, the radio, the telegraph, and today, social media, or through political developments. So, you know, it, it, uh, it could be democracy giving the vote to to, to women, to the poor and propertyless, to uh, religious racial minorities. You, there, you, there have always been an elitist pushback against this idea, and a dread, an existential dread, that the unwashed mob was unfit to uh, be be given access to to information that had to be filtered by the elites. Uh, because otherwise everything would 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 uh, would, would would go to hell, <laughs> basically. Um, uh, so that's that that's a very important uh, sort of um, thesis in in the book. Another one is uh, related to that. It's that I I argue that that many today see free speech as entrenching unequal power relations. I argue that free speech, in fact, may be the most most powerful engine of human equality that human beings have ever stumbled upon. Uh, and that uh, every single oppressed group or, or minority has relied on free speech, the practice uh, and, and principle, to further their cause and stake a claim for equality uh, and, and, and tolerance. In this country, I, I spend a bit of time on how uh, southern states in the 1830s uh, adopted the most draconian uh, censorship laws in American history in order to, uh, to counter abolitionist literature and, and ideas. Uh, so take Virginia, uh, of course, in, in 1776, Virginia became the first state to adopt a, a, um, a Bill of Rights, even before the Declaration of Independence, which said that press freedom was uh, the bulwark of liberty. But then in 1836, uh, Virginia passes a law which says something like, you know, that you're, it's, it's a crime to deny that white masters have a, uh, a right to property in their black slaves, and it's also a crime to, to inculcate resistance to slavery, and, uh, you know, a, a, among a whole laundry list of, of, uh, of, of ways to try and counter abolitionist ideas. On the other hand, you had abolitionists like Frederick Douglass, who himself, of course, was born as a slave, but who argued for a universalist idea of free speech, which he said would, um, uh, would basically destroy slavery. And, and he argued that, that free speech did not depend on the, the color of your skin or the size of your wallet, and that the right of, of free speech is a very precious one, especially, especially to the oppressed. And I, and, and I would say that that you know, is, is a, a, another theme that, that runs through the book. You know, I'm staying at a hotel here at Lafayette Square, uh, very close to it, and, and, uh, and you'll see a placard there uh, showing how in 1917, 
uh, a number of women, uh, women's rights advocates, were, were burning an effigy of, of President Woodrow Wilson, and they were arrested uh, and fined many of these women who were f basically arguing for, for the right to vote. Um, and I remember thinking about that in, in 2018 when I was living on the Upper West Side with my family, and I, I took my son to a museum, and when we went outside, uh, tens of thousands of people were protesting, most of them women wearing these pink pussy hats and, and shouting obscenities at the president of the time. And the NYPD was there to safeguard their First Amendment rights to criticize the, 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 the president in, in terms that uh, were probably uh, more aggressive than those uh, that, that went before them. Uh, uh, and I thought, you know, I thought that was you know, really a, a sign of how free speech had furthered um, the, the, the rights of groups that had uh, previously been persecuted. Of course, John has written very eloquently about how that was also the case uh, for, for, for the gay rights movement, uh, for instance. So when you see the huge um, increases in, in acceptance and tolerance of interracial and gay marriage, uh, I think that uh, that was not achieved through censorship and, and, and putting people, bigots, in, in jail. It was to a large degree uh, one by people using their First Amendment rights to, 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 to do activism, to appeal to, to uh, common humanity, uh, and so on. And the last thing I might want to highlight is that, ultimately, I believe that free speech, the, the health of free speech in any given nation depends more on a culture of free speech than law. So the First, the first Amendment was ratified in 1791, it hasn't changed the wording, but you know, in 1798, you could go to jail for criticizing President John Adams, um, and that would be supported by people like Hamilton and, and Washington, uh, the, the Federalists, whereas uh, uh, with, 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 with Jefferson and, and, and Madison on, on the other side of that conflict, then you, know, you go to, to, as I mentioned, slave, uh, laws uh, uh, prohibiting uh, abolitionist literature. But if you go to World War I, you know, the Supreme Court is completely fine with sending people to, to prison for 10 or 20 years for opposing uh, American involvement in, in World War I. Uh, you have the Red Scares uh, and so on. And, and, uh, and you really have to get into sort of the 50s uh, uh, before free speech is, is consistently protected and, and, and reaches the, the, the threshold by the end of the 60s that uh, with, with sort of Brandenburg versus Ohio, that very, very high tr threshold for, for, for limiting uh, specific, uh, specific viewpoints. And I think that reflects a change in, in, uh, in cultural attitudes, in, in norms in, uh, 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 among Americans because the wording uh, hasn't changed. And you see that actually also in, in famous works like On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. He is at least as concerned about the stifling norms in Victorian England as he is about uh, the, 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 the censorship of, of, of the magistrate and warns that you know, when society's tendency to impose its, its values on dissenters is, is, a, is a danger to free speech. George Orwell says some of the same uh, things uh, so so and that's why I worry for for, for this country because in my view um, both sides if there are uh, there are probably more than two sides but 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 you know, uh, <laughs> are eating away at the culture of of, uh, of free speech um, in 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 this hyper polarized partisan nature of, of, of American politics which I which I fear will ultimately have downstream effects that might affect how the First Amendment is, is constitutionally protected, whether in 10 or 20 or 30 years. So mm. that, that was a, an executive summary. <laughs> Very good. Um, John, some comments? Uh, well, the first comment is, is thank you, John. Thank you, Cato. It's 
even though I think most of our viewers are online, it is nice to be in a room with actual human beings, so thank you all. I feel very good about that. Uh, John, the only thing I don't feel good about is that in your introduction, you didn't mention that my first and seminal work on this subject, now 29 oh. years old, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, was published by whom? There goes my performance review. The Cato Institute. Cato Institute, yeah. And it's, been... it's even worse than that, because the, the second edition, uh, John and I corresponded frequently after it because I was the publisher of it for Cato. Publisher, that's right. How, How could I forget that? And don't forget the audio book narrated by Penn Gillette. Yes, that's it's right. It's spectacular. Anyway, I, so I owe, a, spectacular. It's a, I owe a big debt to Cato because at the time, no one, I couldn't get a commercial publisher for the book. And here we are 30 years later. It's, a, it's a, fair to say a classic, which is what we call books that are ignored for 25 years. <laughs> the reason we were corresponding them. is because he was getting so much money from Chicago. That's, uh, <laughs> it, was really, it really sell, sold, and the second edition sold quite well. Um, so I thought I'd just say three things quickly. The first is about the book. The second is about what we learned from the book. And the third is about the environment we're in right now. First thing about the book is, is get it, buy it, read it. Um, it's not only readable and comprehensive, it's the only thing like it. Unbelievably, until this book came along, there was nothing to read that took you from the very beginning of the ideas of free speech right up to social media. It's all here, the, the ancient Greeks, medieval times where there were occasional outbursts of very interesting thinking only to be suppressed, uh, the Enlightenment, the long history of seditious libel, um, which reappears again and again. Um, it's a fantastic book. I just can't say enough about it. Um, it's, it's a service. It will be a touchstone for years to come. And it's also a lot of fun. Second thing, um, what I learned from the book, or maybe relearned from it, is that the idea of that the government should not only allow, but actively protect speech and thought, which is seditious, vulgar, offensive, wrongheaded, bigoted, uh, or just plain wrong. The idea that government should actually protect that is the most crazy, counterintuitive, wacky social idea of all time, bar none. And if you, if you pop that proposition to someone on the street, they'll say, what's the matter with you? And its only redeeming feature is that it's also the single most successful social idea of all time, bar none. It gives us the peace, the freedom, and the knowledge that build this society. But because it is so deeply counterintuitive, it took 2,500 years to build in the form we know it. And as Jacob just said, the current form in the United States is very young, just extremely young. It's the environment in which the founders uh, wrote the First Amendment was much more restrictive than today's. So what I remind people of and what I hope they take away from this book is that defending and protecting this radical, wacky proposition requires getting up every morning and explaining it from scratch to a whole new generation. And then our kids will have to do that and their kids and their grandkids every single day. And we just need to be cheerful about that because as this book shows you, we're doing incredibly well, actually. I'm not sure Jacob would agree with that. But compared to, for example, my grandfather's time, the greatest, greatest novel of the 20th century, Ulysses, was banned by the government and confiscated on the docks. Couldn't happen today. Um, right up at the present, however, we have, I think, a couple challenges. 
It really bent the paradigm and challenged Jacob and me and John and all of us uh, because they're quite unconventional. We're used to thinking of free speech as something uh, that we protect against intrusion uh, by censors, primarily the government. Free speech in terms of legal protections is stronger in America right now than I'd say it's ever been anywhere in the world. Would that be safe? Yeah, I think that's uh, very accurate. And I think it may be about to get stronger with the current Supreme Court. The kinds of challenges we face, however, don't really fit that box. One is disinformation, and the other is what's often called cancel culture, the systematic use of social coercion to chill and silence. Disinformation is not about censorship. It's actually about, as Stephen Bannon, Trump's former advisor, very aptly and accurately put it, flooding the zone with shit, putting out so, much, so many lies, half-truths, conspiracy theories, exaggerations, that no one knows which end is up. And it turns out that platforms like social media are tailor-made for this because their business model is to maximize eyeballs for revenues, and the way you maximize eyeballs is attractive conspiracy theories, outrage, which is addictive, and so forth. So what we didn't know uh, when the internet got going was we thought you know, it would all be a big open forum and uh, marketplace of ideas, and the best ideas would rise to the top. We did not realize how easy it would be to manipulate this environment to make it epistemically toxic. Um, it's now well known that false stuff travels much faster and much further online than true stuff, which is much more expensive to make and much less fun to click on. That is not a problem that you can tackle with traditional free speech. Uh, in fact, it, um, it does the opposite. It harnesses free speech, weaponizes it, and turns it into a weapon of epistemic destruction, a weapon of mass confusion and chaos. Um, and I think Jacob and I, we can talk about this, uh, but Jacob and I may have something of a disagreement on that because I think he's kind of a purist and wants platforms like Facebook, which he sees as platforms, to essentially adopt the morality, though not the law, of the First Amendment. And I think that's impractical, unsustainable, and actually betrays a lot of the rest of their mission, which has to do with being a community, a business, and a publisher. Uh, so I think they're going to have to be content moderation, and it's a hard problem, but getting it right um, is a lot more complicated than just saying free speech online. The second area, which Jacob did allude to, awfully important, so-called cancel culture, the weaponization of social coercion. Uh, that's always been around. Tocqueville came to the US in 1835 and warned that the biggest threat to liberty in America was not from the government. It was from social coercion, the tyranny of the majority, he called it. Um, Madison worried about the same thing. John Stuart Mill worried about it. Turns out, however, it can be tyranny of the minority. Even relatively small groups of people that are ready to whack you online, demolish your reputation, uh, go to the search engine so that you're called a racist, the first thing any employer sees, demand that you be fired. Even small minorities of people can make life living hell for dissenters uh, and cause a widespread chilling effect. Um, and at the moment, two-thirds of Americans say that they are chilled, that they are reluctant to say their true beliefs about politics for fear of social and professional consequences. Two-thirds, and it's about 60% of students on campus. That's approximately four times the level to the best we can measure. It's hard to compare. It's about four times the level of 1953, the height of the McCarthy era. And the reason for that is in the McCarthy era, there were a couple things you couldn't do, and you could, you could be pretty safe. 
in the uh, canceling era, you don't know when you're safe and when you're not, and that's on purpose. They want to make us our own policemen, so that we're always afraid that we'll step on a new landmine. Um, this is both the widespread chilling problem and the disinformation problem are severe stresses on the epistemic environment. That is our ability to sort truth from falsehood. Um, and they're not things that are within the traditional bounds of free speech. So this book, in a way, is a ladder up to the kind of next kind of conversation that is now beginning. So uh, I think I would, interestingly, I wanted to go back and to the disinformation issue before you, you can respond to it, uh, which is also sometimes called disinformation, sometimes called misinformation, sometimes called fake news, and in general shows up as false speech across a wide range of uh, historical background. Um, so what I want to pose is that yesterday I was listening to a seminar at a major university and a scholar was talking about YouTube and measuring YouTube and sort of, uh, and what he saw there was not sort of partisan differences uh, related to speech or facts or whatever, but rather an insider-outsider perspective. And at the end of the, this was a scholar, most people were scholars, I think, professors listening to it. At the end of the seminar, he posed the question, uh, which he was somewhat, seemed somewhat nervous about posing, but, or uncertain, which was that, is the category of disinformation a way for us to basically put down an uprising, a populist uprising of the last few years? And if that's true, um, shouldn't we consider that, that that might be that? And if it's true, uh, is that normatively good? And two, more than normatively good, is it possible, right? And no one really engaged him on either one of those. But I do think uh, John talks about the differences of the usual, uh, and it is a problem because there are differences. This is a private platforms, and, they, and some sort of suppression of speech is needed for business, right? But uh, is it normatively good? It just happens. It needs to be discussed and thought through because it does. I've had the feeling that I might be engaged in putting down an uprising in my other. Uh, <laughs> you want to explain what that other role is? Uh, I work indirectly for Facebook on its oversight board. Now, I have to say, I will quickly say. That's a this. kindly inquisitor. What's that? <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah, kindly inquisitor. Not, uh, what I want to say is there's absolutely, I don't have any evidence from anything that's happened or anyone has said that anyone conceives what Facebook is doing in content moderation as uh, a political effort to head off a political movement. There's just, I just, and I should also say that I have inside knowledge that there's uh, very, no evidence that uh, Facebook is pursuing uh, a jihad against conservatives. It's just not there, uh, outside or inside. However, when you think about the big picture, there's that to think about. Uh, and also, beyond that, which this scholar was trying to force on us, I think, is it may not be possible. Even if we say, you know, we've got to stop this stuff. It may not be possible. But your perspective is an interesting one, Jacob. What do you think about all this? Yeah, uh, so, so I think 
acknowledging that free speech comes with costs and harms is essential to, to its advocacy, sort of the, the idea that free speech is, 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 is an unmitigated good under all circumstances, I think, is, uh, is not a persuasive uh, idea. Um, I think that social media has amplified, uh, I, I don't think it has generated um, sort of polarization as well. It, so it has amplified uh, disinformation and, uh, and, uh, and hate speech. Um, um, however, I, you know, I'm, and, and I think, you know, for instance, January 6th, for instance, the attack in the Capitol, that probably could not have happened without social media, right? That, you know, if the lies, uh, conspiracy theories hadn't been sort of endlessly regurgitated on, on social media. I don't think it would it, it would have happened. But on the other hand, I'm more skeptical, perhaps, than John about this share of disinformation. Uh, so, so a number of studies show that actually the share of, of, of misinformation, which is all, you know, how do you define it, and, and that's a problem in and of itself, is not you know as massive as as the narrative after the 2016 presidential election. Where it was sort of fake news decided everything, and uh, and people were manipulated into to to voting uh, for, uh, for for Trump, and also that those who are most likely to be persuaded by uh, conspiracy theories are those who are already uh, uh, deeply uh, partisan ideologues. So if you're already someone who hated uh, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats and, and were sort of sympathetic to Trump, you're much like, more likely to consume and share this information than someone who's an independent or, or, or a, a Democrat. So I think those are important nuances. Um, uh, but, 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 you know, even, so, so even if it's not as effective uh, as, uh, as we initially thought, you know, in absolute numbers, you know, if you convince Two or three thousand people that the election was stolen, and that motiv helps motivate them to attack the peaceful transfer of democracy. That's a real problem uh, for for for, uh, for for a state um, like like the U.S. And so, how do we how do we handle it? Um, and this is where I think uh, the European approach is uh, is a cure worse than the disease. So the European approach is to say to Facebook and others, you have to remove illegal content or sometimes even like harmful contents, which is then not really defined, within say 24 hours or you will risk uh, fines uh, of up to 50 million euros. And, and the effect of that is that it basically, uh, we, we, we've done a number of studies which shows that then Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, all these states, basically copy-paste that uh, approach. They do it in bad faith, obviously. Um, and, but we also see that the collateral damage to, uh, to all kinds of other speech uh, is, is enormous. So I think, it, you know, I, I think more in terms of technological development. So I remember, I'm old enough to remember the blogosphere when it was blogs and not centralized platforms that were sort of uh, the, the frontier of, 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 of the internet digital age. And at the time, no one really cared about content moderation on a blog, even if a blog had, say, a million followers, because it didn't really affect the entire ecosystem of information uh, on, on the internet, because it, uh, no, no single blog could act as a choke point uh, or as a massive disseminator of uh, false information uh, the, the way that uh, a centralized platform with, with, with billions of people can. So, so I think decentralization is, 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 is one potential remedy. And I think that chimes with lessons of the history of free speech. So for instance, the Dutch Republic became sort of the first free speech zone in Europe. Uh, and one of the key reasons for that was 
they didn't have a constitution, they didn't have laws protecting free speech, but they had a very weak political center, and so the provinces of the Dutch Republic had a, a, a lot of autonomy, uh, and so uh, you know, if, if, if one province tried to censor someone, they could skip uh, you know, uh, state lines and set up shop uh, elsewhere, and, and that cultivated sort of a, a culture of tolerance that was comparatively much, much, much more extensive than elsewhere uh, on, uh, on the continent. Another thing I think that, that might go some way is to provide users more control over content. Um, and, and sort of allowing, it could be NGOs, to develop filters that we can then use. So for instance, take the issue of anti-Semitism. So some people believe that um, these campaigns to boycott Israel uh, amount to anti-Semitism, whereas others think this is legitimate uh, debate. So Facebook has to, ma to, 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 to make a decision, you know, should, we, should this constitute anti-Semitism or not? And then that you know, has downstream effects for everyone on the platform. But if the ADL, which tends to promote an expansive definition of, of hate speech, could then develop a filter that you can use, then you, know, that, uh, you can shield yourself from what you perceive to be anti-Semitism, but it wouldn't affect everyone else. The same could be said with, with women. A lot of female journalists uh, and, and, uh, and authors find, you know, uh, are, are flooded with uh, misogyny that might not reach a threshold of, uh, of, of, of illegal speech, uh, but which nonetheless is creates a disincentive to engage uh, on, on social media. So you could have a, a filter that filtered away some of the misogynist uh, terms, um, but again, wouldn't affect everyone. Because there might be women who uh, say, you know, I want to see what these bigots are saying. I want to use it to expose uh, people. Uh, I think that uh, is a more of a Solomonic solution than the sort of centralized um, approach where, where governments impose uh, standards on the tech companies or where the tech companies themselves sort of try to navigate through you know, the, the lens of PR or stakeholder management. You know, what, do we, what do we do to have to do to avoid being summoned to Capitol Hill every second week and answer for this or that uh, um, uh, you know, uh, outbreak of what I call in the book elite panic about speech that this or that group uh, doesn't like. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, I think you, know, you can adopt, as, as David Hume ultimately did, sort of a pessimistic case for, for free speech. He had, David Hume had been very optimistic about free speech, and then John Wilkes in the, in, the 70, uh, in, in the 70s or 70s in, in, in the UK sort of used free speech as, as a blowtorch to, to, to attack everyone <laughs> and, and sort of radicalize his, his supporters. And, and David Hume sort of came to think of free speech that, you know, it, it, you know the radical speech is sort of an abuse of free speech, but it's more, it's more dangerous to allow the government to clamp down. So it's sort of uh, an and uh, unavoidable cost of free speech that you have people with 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 extreme views. So so that's how I look at it. But but I wouldn't I would I would certainly not say that, you know, um, Facebook and, and Twitter we should just be indifferent to what what goes on there. But I think there are there are other solutions than than sort of centralized content moderation that we should that we should try to to look at before we go down that road. I'll uh, I'll add a response to. Uh, John, the point you made, and then uh, expand that maybe into a question for, for Jacob on, uh, based on what you just said. John, I think the question about populism versus elitism that this university professor asked would have been more appropriate 15 years ago than now. Mm. Um, because what we have learned in the last few years is that what we are not seeing on, online, for example, 
is the voice of the broad public. What we're discovering is how easily manipulable all of these systems and platforms are by small numbers of dedicated actors, be they uh, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, anti-vaxxers who are able to use a combination of bots and trolls and search engine optimization to make a very small number of activists look like a consensus online. Uh, whether they're cancelers who are typically small numbers of ideological left-wing radicals who are able to project themselves as much bigger forces. The reason we have a constitution of knowledge and that I wrote a book about it is in an unstructured marketplace of ideas, it turns out instead of getting sort of everyone equal, big conversation, you get manipulation by small dedicated groups um, using tools of information warfare. And that's why we go to so much trouble to develop all the rules and norms and institutions like science and mainstream journalism, um, academia, law, um, a lot of government that set up all these systems that require us to be on better behavior, to expose our views to people who don't, don't agree with us, to make it very difficult for one faction to take over at the expense of others. All the things the US Constitution does, the Constitution of Knowledge does in the epistemic world. So it is naive to think that without those rules, the people rule. They don't. The opposite is true. Um, so expanding that to a question for, for Jacob, um, if it's the case that there do need to be rules out there, and they shouldn't be government rules, I agree with you on that. I think the EU approach is too rigid and top-down and you know, fining people, for heaven's sake. Um, I don't think that'll work, and I don't think it's desirable. It seems to me like what Facebook is doing is exactly the right approach. We've had earlier problems like this, the invention of the printing press, um, the rise of uh, the offset printing in the United States, which led to uh, huge amounts of uh, hyper-partisan fake news in US media and others, and they were solved the same way, which is it took a little while, but building up institutions and norms like publishers and peer reviews, uh, ethical norms in journalism, journalism schools, that began to cabin these things. And it seems to me that's what Facebook is doing. They're saying, okay, let's see if we can come up with some frameworks, some rules, some guidelines. We'll make them transparent. Um, we'll tell people what they are. Um, they'll be voluntary in the sense that you don't need to be on Facebook. But if you are here, this is what we expect. That seems to me like what's worked in the past and, and the best available route. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, I, I don't think that there's a, a sufficient degree of transparency, first of all, on, on Facebook. I think it's extremely difficult to find out what, what's, what's going on. And I also think, you know, so, so one of the suggestions that, that my organization has made is that um, the terms that Facebook and, and, and YouTube and others should, should be inspired, you know, they should be inspired by, you know, the, the only thing that approaches something at the universal level, because we have to, you know, there's always this danger in free speech debates of uh, what I call the, the tyranny of American parochialism. <laughs> you know, everything is viewed through a U.S. lens, but, but these are global platforms, and, 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 and what's at stake in the U.S. is not the same in, in Russia or Iran, where social media is basically the only way that you can circumvent official propaganda and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and censorship. So what we argue is that the terms, at least on, on issues such as hate speech and disinformation, should then be inspired by international human rights norms. That's, what they, that, that's sort of the limit that they should try to, uh, to, to reach. But when we analyze the content moderation of, of, uh, of Facebook, we find that you know, on, 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 on hate speech, for instance, of deleted comments that, that we looked at, it, it was 
1.1% of the deleted comments that actually violated uh, Danish law. We also found that of what's, what's, what's being kept up, it was less than 0.006% of, of, uh, of, of, of comments that had been you know, designated as hate speech that actually violated uh, Danish laws. And, and I think that's, you know, that, those type of research, that type of research and, and looking at it in that way is an important antidote to sort of the, the, the message that a lot of European politicians are pushing that basically the platforms are flooded with uh, illegal uh, content. Uh, you know, our, you know uh, I'm not going to say that our research is ex exhaustive, but I think it suggests very much that, that this is actually uh, not uh, the case. And then, you know, I, you know, should Facebook tinker? I think that's uh, unavoidable that they will be tinkering with, with, with different models if, if we were Part of it, we would be experimenting with all kinds of things. But I'd, I, that, that's also why I think a more decentralized model would be better, because then you would have more experimentation by various platforms, rather than having as dominant a platform as Facebook, which gives a huge incentive to governments and other powerful actors to say, we want you to uh, reflect our norms and our values, because that will give us a huge say on how um, on, on, on what is being allowed on... on, uh, on yeah, there's on, certainly a case for decentralization, but and, and this, this question now is not meant to be a gotcha or pin you down. It's, it's curiosity-driven. In the world we live in, where Facebook has a large market share, sure. would you rather that the Facebook Oversight Board exist or not exist? No, I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a good idea that the, 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 the Oversight Board uh, exists. And, and they do, you know, they do, you know, I think in all your decisions, you actually point to international human rights uh, norms. The problem with that is, of course, does it work at scale? Because I don't know how many decisions you've made so far, but, but you know, the, that, that amounts to the, 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 the sort of a nanosecond of content moderation decisions in real life across the platform. Uh, and, and can those content moderation decisions, can they reflect the jurisprudence, if, if you like, so of the oversight board? This is, I want to go back to John's point, uh, his reply to me. Um, first of all, it's not, there was ever really, and I'm not going to be defending a completely unstructured system. The First Amendment in the public forum is structured, right? Uh, Jacob mentioned uh, viewing a dissent in 2016, a, a, a vigorous kind of resistance to Trump. The police were there to protect the protesters. So you have that structure. You all, and you also had, uh, not as, perhaps not significant, but there was speech that is not protected by the First Amendment. That's a constitutional structure, right? The real question is, you have a, with the case of Facebook, but YouTube is perhaps even more important because of the video element, you have uh, a platform that is global with one about two billion people on it every day doing things, two billion posts or whatever, right? The numbers are just immense. Then uh, you have things on it that are, are false speech. So um, who is to judge what speech is to come down? Is it Facebook? Are they to judge it because it contributes to maximizing shareholder value? That's one answer. The Facebook answer in part has been to send disputed uh, posts to um, uh, these groups that decide that, right? The, uh, the various kinds of uh, panels 
that look at the, the speech and decide whether it's misinformation or disinformation. You know, when uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, became concerned about uh, uh, disinformation, misinformation, and so on, he said things you don't want on the platform include, you know, we don't want obvious hoaxes and we don't want conspiracy theories. Well, and so I think there was an assumption it's very easy to tell what that is. Uh, and in the American political system, we basically just leave that <coughs> to people, even up to the incitement. I mean, incitement's very hard to prove. Uh, but essentially, you're turning over the question of truth to small numbers of, uh, of these uh, determination of facts, right? Now, I hasten to add, on top of that, my impression is that that actually is not the way it works because of what John mentioned, which is the problem of scale. If you've got 2 billion people, 100,000 uh, disinformation posts is a very small number, right? And if you have a uh, panel that, or an oversight board that has to go through these things and determine the truth of them, they're not going to get to very many. So it's very, the scale, the one thing about social media that is different is speed and scale. And the scale turns out to be humans can't manage the system. At least, at the, well, we'll see. We have humans that can manage that system. And actually, the algorithms have a, algorithms at those levels make mistakes all the time. It's inevitable. So you have to decide what kind of mistakes you want to make and what the costs are. Uh, so I don't think, you know, this is quite as, I don't think there is actually has been an answer. There's been struggling with it. And finally, the point I would make is this. You have, you had, uh, this is not a point about the current administration. It could be any administration. You have a president and an administration that is going to be running for re-election, that has political concerns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and those are known. Sometimes they want, uh, in recent cases, they want uh, Facebook or others to take down posts, to take down speech. Uh, is that, and they're not going to call the police in and make Zuckerberg take stuff down, but everyone knows Facebook is on, on uh, TV asking for regulations that will be considered by Congress, and the president is important to that process, right? He could prevent regulations. He could advance them. This kind of jawboning process should, you know, what is truth in that context? And is government involved in ways that perhaps our First Amendment doctrine hasn't realized and, and can't act on? I'll just mention a couple of things that have gone by, areas of agreement that I think are important that could easily get, get missed and are often missed in the conversation. Um, one, Jacob said something which is important and true. I spin it a little differently, um, but as important as social media and Facebook, for example, are, they are not the chief spreaders, based on my reading of the literature of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, it's not even clear that they're number two. They vie with uh, AM radio and especially cable news, especially on the right. But far and away, the biggest spreader of disinformation and misinformation is the oldest, and that's politicians. Um, they can use all kinds of channels, and we saw that in Stop the Steal. That was accelerated, I'm sure, by social media. But when you've got a former president of the United States, plus his political party, plus conservative 
media, uh, plus dozens of lawsuits, all pushing a big lie, it's going to get through. So I'm all for focusing on social media, but I think at the moment there's a tendency to blame technology first. When the principles of disinformation and misinformation apply across every channel, and there are many channels. So kudos to Jacob for pointing that out, I agree. Uh, I also agree, by the way, that the goal of disinformation, it, it doesn't succeed primarily in changing people's minds, but that's not what it's trying to do. It's primarily interested in polarizing and confusing, and it's very good at that. Um, secondary of a second area of agreement, when we do get to social media, I think it's an area of agreement. I think it is important to establish rules and boundaries and norms of conduct, and I recognize this will always be hard to enforce. But I also think that in the long run, the larger bulk of the solutions to this crisis won't be in the realm of policy design. It's going to be in the realm of product design. It's going to be figuring out systems that do things like slow people down, introduce friction before they retweet or like something, uh, so that they're asked, as Facebook now does, don't you want to read this before you retweet it? Make us think a little harder. Change the way the algorithms work in terms of what's promoted and what's not and how fast velocity goes. And there are lots of ideas about that. Um, and I, th I think we're looking at systems that were designed for a, an age in which it was just all about getting eyeballs at any price. We've discovered the price is high. And the systems are now looking for ways to integrate more guidelines and guardrails into the user experience. We don't know what that'll look like. Um, but I think we have general directions. And, and that's where the bulk of the improvement will come from. I'm going to uh, direct us away from American parochialism. Because I must say, yes. I must say, one of the things I've learned at Facebook is very hard for me as a person working here at Cato and working in DC has been to get beyond. One thing I learned, by the way, and I would see, I would like, love your response to this, is that if I wanted to advance free speech arguments, the worst thing I could do with my colleagues that didn't come from the United States was say the words First Amendment or the United States, right? because there's this response that it's, it's a parochialism, but also people really do, if you go to the content of free speech rather than the American experience, I think they respond much more favorably, right? So what is the, what's your general sense about outside of Europe and uh, the United States? How, how is the free speech story going? Is it? Well, you know, I actually agree with, with, with John that we're, you know, uh, Compared to you know, 50 or 100 years ago, we're living in a golden age of, of free speech. Not only, you know, in, in terms of legal protections. You know, even if outside the U.S., you might the, the legal protection may not be as strong as under the First Amendment. There are international human rights norms. There are constitutional protections. There are human rights courts that that try to uphold and enforce these uh, norms. And you know, even. Even authoritarian states have to pay lip service to the idea of, of free speech because it has become such a, a, a great uh, norm. However, I would argue that, that the, the golden age is probably in decline. So uh, I, I wrote a piece in, in Foreign Affairs a week ago about the, the free speech recession. So if you look at sort of numbers, uh, suggests that, that free speech has been in decline for more than a decade. Uh, and you know, when authoritarian states are on the rise, it's not a surprise because you learn that going all the way back to the Athenian democracy, the first things that authoritarians will do when they try to crush democracy or representative government 
is to go after free speech. That's just, you know, that, that's, that's the 101 of, of trying to establish authoritarian uh, regimes. What worries me more is that liberal democracies have, have started to view free speech perhaps as much as a threat than as a, uh, as, as a foundational uh, value. And there's a, you know, a whole wave of repressive laws in, in, in democracies. One of them, for instance, in the European Union, where the, the European Commission wants to, uh, to define hate speech as an EU crime, which would allow the Commission to define hate speech across all 27 member states and, and set the, the minimum rules. I mean, that to me is just a big flashing warning sign uh, of, 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 of how you know, leading democracies are thinking uh, 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 about free speech. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, I don't see a lot of sort of civil society organizations in Europe that are pushing back against uh, this. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I argue in the book that this is based on, on what I call the Weimar fallacy, which a term which I, I've sort of borrowed from a, a brilliant professor called Eric Heinzer, but I use it slightly different from him. And, and the idea is basically one that I hope we all share, that of never again, in <laughs> that we will never want to experience the rise of totalitarianism and, and, and uh, industrial scale genocide in, uh, in Europe or hopefully anywhere uh, again. But the European idea is that you need basically militant democracy, this idea advanced by Karl Löwenstein, this German immigrant professor who went to Colombia and wrote these influential articles about how democracies, when confronted with fascism, had to get tough and couldn't worry uh, about free speech and, 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 and had to sort of clamp down. But I try to show in the book that in the Weimar Republic, even though it was very liberal compared to, to you know, the empire under, uh, under Bismarck and, and the German Confederation uh, before that, it was actually quite hostile to, to extreme speech, uh, and it allowed laws and regulations of speech that we would never accept today. Uh, let me give you an example. So a German state could administratively ban a newspaper for up to eight weeks if it spread false news or attacked you know, public officials or undermined uh, uh, the, uh, the government. And so Josef Goebbels, who had started the newspaper Der Angriff, sort of basically to, to, to troll uh, particularly sort of a, a Jewish high-ranking police officer, um, um, uh, claimed sort of proudly that it was the most frequently banned newspaper in, 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 uh, in, in Germany. Uh, and the reason he started the Angriff was that Adolf Hitler was banned from speaking in a number of, of German states. Um, um, the, the, the most depraved anti-Semite in history was probably Julius Streicher, who was the, uh, the editor of Der Stürmer, and who was, I think, justly executed uh, as part of the Nuremberg uh, trial because during the war he explicitly uh, incited to, to genocide, and I don't think anyone would, would argue that that is covered by free speech. But, but during the Weimar Republic, he was less explicitly genocidal, but he did spread these vicious uh, blood libels uh, about Jews, and he was convicted on a number of times for offense against religions, uh, including in 1929, uh, sentenced to two months in prison, cheered by hundreds of supporters when leaving the courtroom, and less than a year later, the Nazis increased the share of the vote, including in Nuremberg, uh, the, the, the hometown of, of Stryker, where, where he was born. And the, you know, the radio did not allow communists or Nazis on there. And most alarmingly, I think, is that the, the Nazis basically used the provisions in law and the constitution of the Weimar Republic that was supposed to protect democracy. They used that to abolish democracy. And that, I think, is, again, a flashing warning sign that you know, even for, for all of the good intentions, if you adopt uh, 
sort of laws that are restrictive of, of free speech, uh, they might very well be used uh, uh, by enemies of democracy when, when they get into power, and they, and, and they may not even be efficient at, at countering uh, the, the rise of, of, of these, especially in democracy. I mean, how far can you go in democracies in, if you want to counter, especially in the digital age, how much censorship would it take to really uh, you, you know, suppress anti-democratic voices you know, where, where you, could, you could migrate from Facebook to Telegram to... Yeah, find, of course, it, that's to some extent why they're turning to disinformation. Yeah, but, but you know... The scarce you, resource today yeah. is not access to publication, it's access to attention, which you can swamp. Sure. So on the international front, I, I'm not sure... I, I think you'd agree with this, Jacob, but tell me, uh, a development that seems to me to be global, very much happening in, the, in Europe, very much in the US, and the thing that breaks my heart most about this entire debate um, is the widespread belief that free speech harms minorities. Yes. We see again and again on college campuses in the US and in the EU, again and again, the justification for various kinds of chilling censorship, investigations, punishments, is we're protecting minority groups from um, being traumatized, being injured, being made second-class citizens, being told that they don't belong on the planet. Um, and as someone who was born in a very different world in 1960 and worked for years for same-sex marriage, we couldn't have done that without free speech. As you said earlier, I, I bang on this again and again. Frederick Douglass said it, John Lewis said it, uh, Mandela said it. They all said without free speech, as John Lewis said, the civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings. But I think that that message is being lost yeah. I think we're losing that battle internationally. Do you, what's your take Yeah, on no, I, I, I tend to, and, and maybe especially in democracies, unfortunately, I think that, you know, in a lot of, of states where they face uh, censorship and repression, they intuitively get that, 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 you know, free speech restrictions will harm the, the, the powerless uh, more, more, more than anyone uh, else. But, but I think this, this idea is, is, is really prominent, unfortunately, and, and, um, and, and, and I don't know the best way to counter it. Hopefully, you know, a historical approach and awareness of what went before is part of, is part of the solution. But I would also, you know, look at Europe. You know, free speech restrictions in Hungary and Poland are actively being used against the LGBT plus community, for instance. That, that should tell you something. Uh, and, 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 and so, uh, so, uh, and so, so and, you know, look at you know, the, the history in the UK when they first adopted this, this law to try to protect minorities from, from hatred, incitement to hatred, the very first person who was convicted was a, was, was, was a black uh, Briton who had said something uh, about white people, whereas uh, powerful white politicians were, were not prosecuted, and so it created more um, uh, controversy. But you also see sort of a scope creep in hate speech laws, so more and more categories are being protected, and what you will see is that those, ca those groups will then use it as a weapon against each other. So it could be the LGBT plus community uh, trying to use hate speech laws against uh, uh, religious conservatives uh, and vice versa. Uh, and that, uh, I think, really is, is dangerous because that's sort of a race to, to, the, to the gutter. Where, yes, where and we're seeing the trans community now use some very censorious tactics yeah. in Britain and the US, which also breaks my heart. So before we go to Q&A, let me ask you follow up on one of your points. So there's the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights that the United States uh, signed about 30 years after it was introduced in 1992. 
the ICCPR, the International Human Rights Law main document, contains two interesting parts that relate to freedom of speech. And this relates to the global element of free speech now. Article 19 is very much like the First Amendment. It reads a, somewhat like the First Amendment on the one hand. Article 20, Section 2, uh, includes a uh, uh, part that requires the signatories to essentially ban hate speech. It mandates that they agree to do so. That is, and also speech uh, uh, require, you know, fostering war, aggressive warfare. Now clearly, there was a lot of debate about this in the 50s and 60s, but clearly you can see that Section uh, Article 20 came out of the trying to not repeat the national socialist experience in Germany and so on. And yet, there it is in international law, both a strong statement of freedom of speech and a, a requirement for banning, which by the way, um, Facebook has and others have a, a strong uh, community standards about hate speech. So what, looking back and from your research, and do you think that uh, what side of the international law is going to win out? That's a good question. And the interesting thing about this, uh, I, I won't go down the rabbit hole of that, but it was basically a, a, a provision that was uh, uh, advanced by the Soviet uh, bloc. They tried to uh, get a similar provision in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Eleanor Roosevelt uh, fought vigorously against it, and, and Western states succeeded initially, but then lost the battle in, uh, with, with the International Covenant on Civil and Political uh, Rights. Um, and, and so it's, uh, and, and, and you know, basically it was based on a, you know, 1936 Stalin Soviet Union had in, in Article 123 of its constitution, it had a, an obligation to prohibit hate speech, which should tell you something about, about the concept, because Stalin was not above using hate speech <laughs> himself. Um, but, but uh, and, and so that um, ha has been a dangerous instrument. But I would say that in the past 10 years or so, this provision has been interpreted very narrowly by a number of, of uh, someone like David Kay, who is, who is a U.S. law professor, but who was the, the, the special rapporteur at, at the U.N. for freedom of expression um, and opinion, and, and, who, and, and, and even the Human Rights Committee, they, ha they have sort of tried to narrow it. And I think the reason they've done so is because in the U.N. system, it's so obvious that a number of, of states are trying to game the system and, and try to expand the interpretation of Article 20, the obligation to prohibit hate speech, to basically allow them to prohibit uh, dissent, and which is exactly what Eleanor Roosevelt warned about in, in, uh, in the 50s. But I'm sort of more hopeful now that, uh, it, 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 uh, that, that the loophole has been somewhat closed. And I think the Obama administration actually played a crucial role in that in 2011 when they fought against the, the campaign by Islamic states to to adopt a, a blasphemy ban at the international level, they actually, uh, um, a process from that sort of resulted in a, in a more limited interpretation of that. And, and, but it's interesting for me as someone who is vigorously opposed to that provision that I often rely on international human rights law to say, that, for instance, when it comes to social media, this is our sort of the least bad option. Um, uh, and then sort of having to, to rely on, on a provision that was basically <laughs> uh, proposed by the, by, by the Soviet bloc. Uh, so we have a microphone here if you want to come down and so everyone here and online can hear your question, please do so. 
when you come down uh, before you offer that question, uh, you have a choice of whether to revealing who you are or not. Uh, we, we preserve anonymity here so that the speech is not chilled. However, this is David Bowes, if you want to have some pick David Bowes, the... Any good to put my mask back on there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to go back to something Jacob said early on, which was a culture of free speech is more important than a First Amendment. And I, I sort of agree with that. On the other hand, it seems to me that I've seen numerous instances in the past few years, maybe the past few months, where distinguished writers on free speech or on uh, or, or public intellectuals generally have said about something going on in Canada or Britain or continental Europe, that wouldn't happen here because we have a First Amendment. Now, maybe there's a question, what is the relationship between the First Amendment and a culture of free speech? And if somehow you could give Canada a First Amendment right now, would that change their culture? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's not a zero-sum game. I think that, that there's a relationship between it. My, my point is that if the culture of free speech, the, the culture of tolerance that underpins legal protections deteriorates, the, the law is likely to, to, to follow uh, behind that. But, but, there's, but that doesn't mean that the, the First Amendment is, is, is of no consequence. I think it's, it's, it's very much of consequence. And I think, you know, particularly at this point of time in, uh, in, in, in America, you know, without a strong protection of, of the First Amendment, I think you would see speech restrictions being weaponized in various states, you know, blue and red states that would use them, speech restrictions, in order to pound away at, uh, at, 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 at those they deemed uh, ideologically unsound. As we all, you know, the, the, I think the, the, the bills against so-called critical race theory that we see in a, num a number of, of Republican states that are limited to education, I think they would probably be, you know, adopted at a much broader level. And you can actually see that when you, when you ask Democrats and Republicans about their degree of tolerance for, for different kinds of speech, you see huge partisan gaps, you know, you know, Democrats very supportive of uh, protests against racial justice in 2020, Republicans much less uh, so. Republicans very supportive of um, the First Amendment extending even to, to misinform uh, misinformation, Democrats much less so. Um, uh, so. So I think the First Amendment is, is really important. I just fear that the, the level of protection would, would erode if the, if the underlying culture of free speech is, is, is eroding. Am I right, Jacob, to remember that Mill said something like, this is a very loose paraphrase, but, but given a choice between strong, speech, strong free speech laws plus weak free speech culture versus weak free speech laws and strong free speech culture, he would take the stronger culture as being the more important thing. Uh, Mill? I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah I, mean, yeah, I think yeah. it's in chapter three, but I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I'm sometimes asked, you know, how do I feel about bans on Holocaust denial in Germany? And I, what I tell people is I don't really get my underwear in a knot about it because uh, Germany is a special case. And what I worry more about is does, does the culture of the country, does its environment support the values of free speech? And if they do, then a few laws like that probably won't do a great deal of harm. They probably won't be abused all that much. And it's really the culture of free speech that is the first thing we have to defend in that situation. But maybe Jacob wouldn't agree. Yeah, no, uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, 
that Germany has, of course, a, a culture of free speech. But is you know what I found in my book is that German, the, the German culture of free speech is a very much an elitist one, and it has been so <laughs> throughout. You know, won't go down that that, ra that rabbit hole either. But the Germans are really, really concerned about the unwashed mob getting access to uh, dangerous uh, ideas. Uh, Understandably, given their history, but I worry that perhaps they interpret it uh, wrongly uh, and, and leave um, ammunition for, for nefarious forces with, with their approach to speech. So I, just, I make a remark about Mill here, which goes to some of your earlier remarks. I, I think the harm principle is great. I think you can probably use it to defend free speech in trans-global in a global situation. The problem with Mill, of course, is that he says in All Liberty that this only applies to civilized countries. Mm. The barbarians can't do it. So I think it's important when we can rescue the harm principle for our purposes. But it is important to note that that's, uh, you know, Mill was off base there. That was really, because otherwise, think about if you're somewhere else uh, other than Europe or the United States and you're reading John Stuart Mill and you come across that. Yeah. Are you an advocate of free speech after that? Peter. I do. Ago in New York, when you were at the Baby Cato in Denmark, as I call CEPAS, uh, quite a good organization in Denmark. And uh, you've come a long way. Congratulations. Uh, you also mentioned, I can say, our mutual friend, Clemmy Rose. And, uh, but what nobody said was that he's also a senior fellow at Cato Institute. Mm -hmm. I just looked it up, and he's still there. Uh, my question. Where was I? Yeah, Fleming Rose and uh, I be having my accent. People say, oh, you're from Denmark. Why did you have to do that nasty thing about the cartoons? And every story seemed to start with Fleming Rose in the Jyllandsposten publishing those nasty cartoons that made the Arabs very upset. What they forget to tell, and I've gone through your videos, and I don't hear it either, is actually the Danish uh, Muslims threw the first punch in that there was an uh, innocent Danish, like we all publish educational children's books about things in the world, and it was about to educate them about what Muslims were, since they were coming in to, the Den to Denmark and they didn't know what it was. And Fleming Rose was at a party where he overheard somebody say that the, the uh, illustrator, I forgot his name, uh, had withdrawn himself from making drawings that we do in, in all kinds of books for children because they had given him death threats. And so Fleming said, oh my God, uh, do we really have a self-censorship problem in Denmark? Let's find out. And the story was that uh, he went out to the Danish cartoon organization, I think 22 cartoonists in Denmark. And half of them said, uh, half of them said no, we dare not do it. A couple of them said, uh, okay, uh, no, this is just anti-Muslim propaganda. We don't want to participate. But the ones that did do the cartoons did it to try to prove that we do not have self-censorship in Denmark. And the rest is history. Mm. But I really like to, to tell people that Fleming was not the one who threw the first punch. 
No, I, I don't think uh, cartoonists throw, 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 <laughs> throw punches at, uh, at all. And you know, what, what is often also forgotten is Fleming actually wrote a very eloquent piece accompanying the cartoons. And he argued that free speech and tolerance were enlightenment values that they applied to all and that no single group or individual could claim sort of special protection and that in fact it was sort of a bigotry of lower expectations to say that special rules should apply to Danish Muslims. If they were to be part of, of Danish society, uh, equality and tolerance would, would uh, have to apply on equal terms. And yet you have someone like the, the, the German uh, famous author Günther Grass who was uh, comparing uh, Fleming's piece and the cartoons to, to, to Das Stürmer, which I thought was just despicable <laughs> in many ways. And of course uh, the, the cartoon affair is, is also part and parcel of why there was an attack against Charlie Hebdo because it was one of very few magazines that actually showed solidarity with Ulan Spaston and republished uh, the cartoons. Um, yeah, so. so Peter's uh, question leads me to, I just have to reveal this. So, the, so I have a colleague at Facebook who worked on the Obama work at the United Nations that you talked about, about uh, religious uh, heresy and so on. Uh, and she and I were talking one day about uh, things, and she said, you know, when we were going into those UN meetings and arguing for free speech, the one group you could always count on, the diplomats you could always have at your side were the Danes. And I have to say, I don't know, I'll keep testing this. I'll, someday I'll find an uh, intolerant Dane, an illiberal Dane. But that seems to me to be true. And so keep your eye out. If you come across a Danish person, probably they share your views, and probably a Cato-like view on Well, we were the first country in the world that, uh, that, that formally ad uh, abolished any and all censorship in, in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in 1770. It did, didn't, didn't you know, go so well. The, the guy who did it, uh, who basically usurped the power of the king, was executed, beheaded, and had his hands cut off in public. But. Uh, Okay. Struck, a, struck, struck a blow for free speech. <laughs> so I do, I do want to get to some online questions here, and there's a, many of them, many people are concerned about uh, Section 230 and about uh, the, in other, Section 230 is essentially why Facebook has the right to do all of this. They're outside the uh, laws of uh, uh, libel and so on. Um, but there were some, a couple of cases that I think that's somewhat too complicated to get, to get into, given our, if you want to have some comments about it, that'd be very interesting. One, but this whole question of culture, uh, one person points out, these are anonymous uh, questioners, that, you know, this disinformation and so on, uh, and the problems online, um, if they didn't have people who wanted it, that consumed it, it wouldn't exist. And second, then, there's the traditional, uh, over the last few years anyway, uh, response to what about education? To what extent can education, because actually the free speech doctrine is based in the idea that ultimately we can exchange views, and suppressing views creates distortions, right? Um, and ultimately we can exchange views, and it will be better. It may not be perfect, but it'll be better than uh, it was going to be otherwise. Uh, and so education and the ability to critically think about these questions is important. So I'll, I'll, I think I'll, I'll be interested to hear John on that, uh, uh, and then I can come back. Well, there, were, there were two things there. One was education, and the other was demand. Demand, yeah. You've, uh, you've answered the demand question in a way. Um, yeah, there, there's a 
very large and important element of demand pull in the world of conspiracy theories and disinformation. People want it, it fills a gap in their lives, often gives them a sense that they have insider knowledge and purpose and a mission in life and a villain to slay and all of that. The reason we have a constitution of knowledge is because there are so many ways to manipulate us. Intelligence provides no protection at all. There are dozens of cognitive biases and social biases, and it takes a lot of discipline to keep us away from those things. It's a collective action problem, maybe good for an individual or fun for an individual to consume and spread conspiracy theories about, say, Jews, but uh, it doesn't take much of that to despoil the epistemic environment, and that's why we have rules and structures uh, throughout society, not just in the epistemic realm. Um, the second point was the big one. Well, to what extent does education? Or yeah, education sort of... seems to have some benefits. The countries, <laughs> uh, if, um, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a controversial phrase when put that way. But what I have in mind is that I think a lot of the um, problems around social media have to do not just with the design of social media per se, but the environment in which they find themselves, which was a population which had never been exposed to these tools, was epistemically naive about them, like your professor friend who says, well, it's just going to be, if a lot of people are doing it, it must be populist. Uh, and it seems to be helpful in countries that are doing it uh, to do education on media literacy, especially middle school uh, and on into high school. And critical thinking education seems to help better preparing ourselves for the pitfalls that we encounter in this environment. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm a fan of, of those kinds of measures. They're coming to the United States. Of course, I don't think they should be dictated by government. Um, but I do think we can, be, we can better prepare ourselves for encountering the environment that we're now in. And we could hardly prepare ourselves worse. I don't know, Jacob, what do you, you're. Yeah, you know, one of the things uh, that I regret not including in the book is what I see as the real problem <laughs> with, with free speech is that free speech, you know, it doesn't provide a, a sense of meaning and purpose. It doesn't bind us together in the same way that, say, religion or nationalism does. Or QAnon, it, for that matter. Yeah, or, or, or it does in particular circumstances. So, like, uh, the, 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 the founding generation would, would, would it, free speech and the opposition to, to British, to the Stamp Act and other British attempts to limit dissent would bind them together. You know, they were, they were advancing free speech as the bulwark of liberty against uh, British slavery. Um, but when the Revolutionary War had been won, free speech suddenly became a principle that amplified their, their political and philosophical differences. And then suddenly you have sort of uh, quasi-civil war between, uh, b between uh, the, the, the greatest generation uh, of, of Americans. And you have sort of Alexander Hamilton arguing that, you know, um, the Sedition Act should be vis vigorously enforced against, you know, anyone uh, slandering or using malicious propaganda against any government official should be prosecuted. And, you know, foreigners who were responsible for the incendiary presses should just, all of, all of them should be thrown out of uh, of, of, of the U.S., uh, uh, whereas sort of Madison writes a very eloquent defense of the First Amendment, and Jefferson is also opposed. But then what happens when Jefferson <laughs> wins the presidential election? Uh, you know, uh, he, he, in his inaugural address, he gives a great sort of unifying speech 
sort of instead of owning the feds, he, 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 he sort of uh, says, you know, uh, you know, we shouldn't prosecute each other with laws. But then in 1803, his name has been dragged through the mud by the Federalist Press, and he writes these private letters suggesting that might be a good idea to prosecute some of these Federalist papers in, in state courts, and some of them actually are. So that shows that you know, even if, if even Jefferson <laughs> is liable to what in the book I call Milton's curse, basically the the the, un, the the unprincipled and selective defense of free speech, then then that is something that all human beings are are very vulnerable to. So we 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 we, we come with sort of our original software that we've evolved. Its default mode is intolerance, and we've built this sort of fragile patch on top of it, which is tolerance and, and free speech. But that constantly has to be sort of updated. And we have to build a firewall around it. And when that firewall sort of fails, uh, uh, our, our default mode will, will override it and, and we'll be back to, to, to intolerance. And, and, and I think you know, um, in, in those circumstances, sort of nationalism or religion uh, will provide a, a sense of meaning, social cohesion. And in those circumstances, free speech will then be suddenly be seen as a threat to that sense of social cohesion that binds us together. And that is particularly dangerous in times of uncertainty, of political polarization, uh, uh, so more or less the times that, that, that we live in right now. <laughs> so I would be remiss if I didn't speak up on behalf of my yet anonymous Professor Fred. I don't think that, uh, I think he probably agrees pretty closely with what John thinks about these matters. But uh, he thought there was a normative, uh, arg you know, was that normatively good to suppress essentially a political movement? Uh, and that you needed that argument. John gives you one in his book. But beyond that, he raised the question of, is it even possible to commit this kind of suppression and to essentially uh, prevent a political movement from attaining its ends? Uh, and I would say that's an interesting question because remember, it may be that you can suppress speech at scale, but there's pro the problem with that is that you also inevitably suppress a lot of speech that is protected, right? This is the Facebook problem, not going around and seeing something and saying, oh, that's bad, right? It, there's two billion people writing. You can't do that, right? You can't even, well, there's appeals processes and those are hard too, I would say. Yeah, I, I think this is a straw man question, John, uh, because no one believes, I don't think anyone seriously believes you can suppress speech yeah. in the current environment. The question now, the reason I wrote The Constitution of Knowledge, and I think the reason Jacob's doing the work at Justicia and this book, is figuring out where the guidelines and guardrails are going to go so that we can incentivize ourselves in pro-social ways. And humanity's been doing that forever, and that is not about suppression. It is not about pre-wiring some particular political outcome. Um, it is figuring out how to be our better selves. I, you know, I think there are some interesting uh, places to look for inspiration. So Taiwan, I think, is a, is a very interesting place. So you basically had this uh, sunflower movement, which were these sort of hackers, basically, who, who squatted parliament, but one of them is now the, the minister of, of, I think, technology, Audrey Tang. And they, and they, they are basically working on, on sort of updating institutions to the digital age. Um, and, and, and sort of in, trying to build institutions and technology that will that will increase rather decrease than decrease trust, which will spur sort of cooperation um, at, at a local level, especially sort of it has been quite useful. For instance, if you want to decide in in, in a neighborhood, you know, should there be a 
I don't know, a bike path, or, or uh, then this platform can sort of help people come together and, 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 uh, and, and decide on these issues, finding sort of um, basically areas where, where people agree rather than sort of uh, looking at disagreement or, or, or rewarding that. That's an interesting one. Another, um, there's a new field called cognitive immunology, which is looking at can you kind of create firewalls in communities to slow the viral spread of misinformation. There's lots of interesting thinking, but I will correct something I said earlier. I said no one really thinks that you can suppress speech or political movements in this environment. Someone does, and I think it's China. Yeah. No. And we haven't got to China yet, but talk about a challenge to this paradigm. Yeah. I, 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 that was I just that was the, you can suppress speech. It's just that you get lots of false positives too. But you can yeah, and I think you know, China is probably I would say the Soviet Union during Stalin was probably the most censorious state, uh, at least in the in, in the twenty in, in, in the twentieth uh, century. Uh, uh, but China is, is, is probably, current China under Xi Jinping is probably winning that contest because technology is just being used in such a way. But, but the, the, the worrying thing is that China is creating this, these digital client states, so it's, it's exporting its technology. And also, you know, uh, an apocryphal <laughs> Lenin quote is that, you know, the capitalist will send us, will send us the rope with which we will hang him. Uh, and I think that that is a little bit true with some Western companies who, you know, Cisco going into China and, and, and building the, the Great Firewall, sort of Google working secretly to try and, and, and build a search engine that incorporate the dictates of, of, the, uh, of, of, of the Chinese Communist uh, Party. So, so I think China is really, they, their ambition is that they will be able to control speech in, 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 in almost every detail. And I think their, their traditional censorship is, is really, really astounding, but they have more devious ways from flooding you know, um, online community with, with propaganda to just having around-the-clock detailed surveillance, which is a much more probably effective way to control what people say if, if, if you're being watched in real time all the time. How, do you, how you know, would you be... Would you be would not be afraid to to speak out? And if it has social consequences, if you lose the the right to travel, or if you lose the ability to get a promotion if you say something uh, uh, wrong, so that is 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 really uh, I think a, a huge worry. So I hope for the people online who had many good questions that I have I tried to go through it to get the themes and 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 speak the themes here. Uh, so uh, please don't take offense if I didn't get quite to your uh, question. As always, there were more questions, and Cato is a private institution, so we can censor as we wish. <laughs> uh, uh, that's happened here before in this auditorium. Um, but uh, I, we, I think we got to the issues that were raised in many cases, and it do, does show the importance of the social media and the, at the free speech edge, I think. And, the book is Free Speech. The author is Jacob Lenchangama, and he's been here at Cato today. I hope he comes again many times. Our friend John Rausch has also uh, commented today, and you should look for his book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And thank you very much, both online and here in the auditorium. It's great to see people again. I agree with John about that. And lunch is upstairs.